the lack of courage among so many, particularly on the Republican side, is just truly extraordinary. And I've had the privilege of working with Liz Cheney a bit over the last year or so, who I think is a national hero and is what political courage looks like. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, David Eichenbaum, is partner at Village Square, a political media and communications consulting firm. David has a long career in political communications, working first on the Hill for Senator Carl Levin and Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, then on the campaign side at the DNC in, in some Senate campaigns, and then becoming a successful media consultant for many years with his firms Struble, Eichenbaum, and Eichenbaum Skinner before starting Village Square. Really enjoyed hearing about David's career, including how he started as an actor and got the chance to return to that later in life and how he navigated his journey in politics. We spoke about a wide range of political issues as well, including his work on the board of People First, which works to limit political disinformation. David's a great guest. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David Eichenbaum of Village Square. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I've been in politics for about 30 years or so. I started on the Hill and worked my way to campaigns and then to being a media consultant, but it's a second career. My first career was as an actor. After I graduated from college, I spent five years in New York and LA as, as an actor and decided once that wasn't going the way I had hoped. It was time to go to plan B, which was to move to Washington. And I actually thought I would get into policy and foreign policy in particular. And I ended up taking a different path. And here I am. David, where'd you grow up? What kind of family? So I was born in New York. We lived in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. I spent my very early years there and then moved to New Jersey. So I'd have to say I actually grew up in New Jersey. I have two brothers. We were a very close family from Flatbush. My parents were born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandparents were born and raised in Brooklyn. So 
for a an, an American Jewish family, we, we actually are a little, I think, unusual in that we go back several generations. My great-grandparents on both sides came to this country in the late 19th century, around the turn of the 20th century. My dad was a corporate executive in Manhattan, and my mom was a teacher. My dad is from Flatbush. I used to go there as a kid and visit his father, who grew up there also, another Jewish family. And now their house is gone. It was turned into something else, and things have changed. But I somewhat identify with that neighborhood, even though I didn't grow up there. So an interesting story is when I was born, we lived in this apartment on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn. And after a couple of years, we moved to this apartment complex near Coney Island. This apartment complex was and still is called Trump Village. Lovely. Yes. Who knew at the time? <laughs> um, was that Trump the father? It was Trump the father. Yeah. yeah. Also a gem. When I was in um, kindergarten, when we lived in Trump Village, it was just like two blocks from Coney Island. And then we moved to New Jersey, which is where I grew up. Had a great childhood in Highland Park, New Jersey, and then went to the University of Michigan. Current national champs. <laughs> and you studied literature there? Is that true? I did. I was an English lit major. Yep. I knew at the time I wanted to be an actor. But I also knew at the time that I wanted to get a real education. So I didn't major in theater. I majored in, in lit. And I did theater, a lot of theater on the side. Some through the school, but a lot through a local theater in Ann Arbor. Actually, another interesting tidbit is that I was in the very first regional production of Children of a Lesser God after the Broadway run. And I learned uh, sign language, a a ASL for that, actually. What was the draw for you about the theater? And It seems like it actually would have a lot of usefulness in politics, that kind of training. I've heard that. I've you know gone from, in some respects, in front of the camera to behind the camera. There was a lot of relevant skills that were, that were involved that were transferred over to what I do now. But the, the appeal was in eighth grade, a friend and I in middle school sort of produced, directed, and acted in this play. I mean, if you want to call it that, in eighth grade. So we sort of conceived it. It was about a drug dealer and a drug buy or bust gone wrong. And, and we had Yes Music that we piped in and... I played the lead and my friend directed it and I used the terms loosely. I kind of was stuck or hooked from, from then on. And I don't know whether it was this appeal of, of being in front of an audience, whether it was the appeal of, of becoming someone else, or maybe it was a combination. There was a rush that I got from doing it that was kind of like a drug. Tell me about the five years of being a professional actor then. So I painted a lot of apartments in New York City. One of my roommates was an artist, a painter, and to make money, he painted apartments. And to me, that held a lot more appeal than being a waiter. 
which I did once and got fired for bad attitude. So <laughs> I, I tried it once. It just didn't work. But painting apartments was great because if I had to leave for an audition, I could leave for an audition. Uh, it, it didn't matter. And, and so my schedule was kind of my own. I didn't have to really answer to anybody, particularly ordinary customers. And the acting part was challenging just because it's a really tough business. And so I had lots of auditions and got a few things over the course of those years. And I did a couple of really bad plays off-Broadway. I did some really bad plays off-off-Broadway, mostly off-off. There were a couple off, nothing on. And I'd say that I came close several times to getting something bigger, but it, it didn't happen. And so I spent three years in New York, and then I spent about two years in L.A., the last audition that I had in New York before deciding to give LA a shot was for a, a Broadway play called Broadway Bound by Neil Simon. And I was up for a, a particular role, the friend of the Neil Simon character in the play. And I got called back. And so I was very hopeful. And I ended up not getting it. And I lost that role out to Jason Alexander. I said, okay, well, that's that, and I'm going to move to L.A., and I, and I did, and I actually, L.A. was even harder. It's a sort of a different situation out there in the, and TV and movies, and you'd think that there were more opportunities there, but it felt like there were fewer. There were more opportunities to work in New York in the theater than there were in L.A., at the end of my two years in L.A., and I did some teaching out there, and I did some other things, obviously, just to just to make a living, which I wasn't making as an actor. And at the end of the two years, the very last audition that I had in LA before I moved back to the East Coast was for a movie called White Palace with Susan Sarandon and James Spader. And I was auditioning for a James Spader character's best friend. And I got called back. Great. This is promising. Of course, you know, I'm planning on leaving and I'm now, you know, but it, it took two years, but maybe, maybe, you know, patience, patience paid off. Turns out I lost the role to none other than Jason Alexander. He is your black beast, your enemy out there. Did, did you ever talk to him about it? No, we actually <laughs> have a mutual friend who, who, who once, you know, re reached out and told him, the story. Subsequent to leaving that part of your life, did you end up acting in other things along the way? Yes. And more recently, I, I mean, that, that I left that behind. I moved back to New York briefly, and then I, I decided I was sort of at a crossroads. Okay, well, I can either go to, I'm done with this. I can either go to graduate school, which was a consideration, or I could move to Washington and get into that world because that's always been my other interest and passion. I decided to move to Washington. I'd spent an, enough years not on a career path that I decided it's time to get on a career path. I thought that I would get into sort of government and policy. and But the acting thing, many years later, and now we can fast forward to like eight years ago, to around 2014, 2015, a good friend of mine, a dear, dear old friend of mine was the showrunner for The Americans. My friend Joel Fields 
and his partner conceived of and and wrote and show ran the Americans. He had said to me for several years, yeah, you know, have you ever thought about trying again? And, you know, I'm happy to introduce you to ca my casting director, et cetera. And I'd always said, no, no, I, I have a day job. I'm done. I gave it a shot. And then he was visiting once and he said, you sure? And I said, yeah, you know what? Fine. Next time I'm in New York, be happy to sit down with your casting director. Why not? What the hell? So next time I'm going to New York, that meeting was set up. And she was a lovely person. And she said, hey, by the way, would you mind if a friend of mine sat in as well? Her office is across the hall. She's the casting director for House of Cards. I said, sure, great. So I spent a lovely hour with both of them. And, <laughs> and they basically said, if it's okay with you and anything that's right for you comes up, we'd like to throw it your way and see if you're interested. Because we have so few opportunities to find fresh faces who are middle-aged guys. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy who's a fresh face. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so turns out that I ended up getting a role with House of Cards first. And I did six or seven episodes of the show. And then shortly after that, something with the Americans popped. And I did three or four episodes of the Americans. And it was, it was great. I mean, it was a lot of fun and it was nerve wracking because back in the day when I was young and I was, uh, and I had lead roles in, in, in plays and, and I memorized a lot of lines. And now much later on in life, I had these roles with far fewer lines, but I was terrified about remembering them. Sure. Particularly because I'm acting with big name people like Kevin Spacey, but we don't have to get into that. <laughs> and um, Robin Wright in, in House of Cards. And I was terrified about remembering my lines. It was a very different feeling on each set. In, in campaigns, I always say, and it's, I believe it's true that the campaigns take on the personality of the candidate. And each campaign does feel very different depending on the candidate. And I have also realized that sets TV or, or film sets do really take on the personality of the lead actors. And it may also be a part of what, you know, what the subject matter is, but the, the set on House of Cards was incredibly tense. I mean, it was a tense show. It was an, an intense, but the set as well was the same. I mean, it was tense and it was intense. And the set for the Americans, it was also an intense show. But it, but it was actually a much more relaxed, dare I say, friendly set. So very, very different experiences. Sounds like kind of a lovely thing to have your life circle back to something that had been difficult in some ways in your youth and get a chance to make it a bit later on. Yes. I mean, I like mixing it up a little bit. I think it's one of the reasons why I gravitated toward campaigns and, and have enjoyed being a media consultant because every campaign is different and every year is different, right? Every election cycle is different. And I think it's also why I, I really like governor's races because in federal races, right, you can go from one Senate race to another and the states are different and the candidates are different. But the issues tend to be similar. 
federal issues. In governor's races, there is more a variety and and it's it's much more state specific. But overall, I have really I think I've gravitated to it in part because a there's never a dull moment, which I think is similar to the theater. There's really never a dull moment, and so there's there's excitement and all of that. But every campaign is is different in many ways, and so it keeps it fresh. So tell me about that transition out of acting into politics, into the Hill, and then into campaigns. What were you learning along the way? You can, not obviously can't go into great detail about it, but how was your life changing as you did that, and why did you like it? When I look back on it, and I sort of audacious what I tried to do. I mean, I showed up on Capitol Hill having been an actor. I mean, all I've done was I was an actor. I mean, I, painting apartments wasn't really a relevant experience to tout. So... I had to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and like really push myself on people. And I had to introduce myself to them. I am an introvert, but I can push myself to be extroverted if I have to be. And so I had to do that. I just, I didn't know anybody. And so I just had to start meeting people and then asking for names. I'm this guy walking around the hill with his resume, an inappropriate resume, trying to get a job on the hill, any job. And I did that for several months. I think having spent five years as an actor pitching myself and being rejected constantly was very good training for this. I bet. And so I wasn't discouraged when I kept not getting jobs. I realized that I didn't have the relevant experience, but I thought that eventually being smart and aggressive and persuasive and all that would eventually yield something. Finally, a Senate office took pity on me and gave me a volunteer job. <laughs> That's sort of oxymoronic, but gave me a place to hang my hat and, and volunteer compiling the uh, legislative record in advance of uh, uh, an upcoming campaign. Senator Carl Levin, who, who is no longer with us, but is dear to my heart and was just a, an amazing person and an amazing public servant hired me, well, hired in quotation marks to volunteer in his office to have a place to kind of base myself. And after a couple of months of doing that and having that as a base to look for other jobs, but also working on compiling Carl's legislative record or helping to do that, gave that office an opportunity to get to know me and see my work. So a couple of months later, when his press secretary left to move to Michigan to join the campaign, and the deputy press secretary became press secretary, I was offered the job of deputy press secretary. It is not what I intended to do. It's not what I came here to do. I came here to work on policy and foreign policy, preferably. But at that point, I would take any job offered. And it was his deputy press secretary. About a month later, maybe a month later, the, the, the new press secretary announces that she's pregnant and she's leaving. I become press secretary. Pretty quick move up from uh, unpaid intern. Indeed. <laughs> no, I guess the rest is history. When young people come to me and they say, hey, do you have any advice? How can I do what you do? I said, well, you shouldn't do what I'm doing right now. There are other things that you should do first, but... 
from a character level, you should basically be persistent. It's what I've told my kids for, for years. Just don't give up. And politics is such a permeable space. If you open almost any door and get just like slightly into whatever organization it is and you do good work, whether it's driving a candidate or compiling clips or whatever the entry level thing is. I mean, almost everybody I've talked to has a story like that about how they got to know somebody and one thing led to another. And then they are now in some elevated place with a lot of responsibility. Oh, it's true. Right. Uh, particularly you, you hear many stories about drivers, right? I, I was so-and-so's driver. And then eventually I was so-and-so's campaign manager and then secretary of state or whatever. Yeah, it, it happens. And I guess there's probably some kind of natural move from being press secretary to a couple of people to getting into the campaign world. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think that I would move out so quickly, but it just turned out. And maybe this is in another reason why it's good that at, at least at that point in my life, I didn't actually go into a policy job. I got bored. I got bored pretty quickly. The year that I was with Carl Levin was incredible. It was a learning experience and he was amazing to, to be around and, and, and watch. And that was during the first Gulf war. And I think he was ranking member of the armed services committee or close to it. And he went to the Gulf and that was his toughest reelection campaign ever back in 1990 and watching how that worked as well. After the campaign was over and and the press secretary came back to DC, it was time for me to move on. And I got a job as press secretary for Rosa DeLauro, who had just won her first election. So she was starting as a freshman member of Congress and I was her first press secretary. And Rosa was very different from Carl. She came out of politics, right? She'd been in Emily's list and she'd, you know, she'd been a political person with Chris Dodd. And, and, and so she was very savvy and experienced politically and is married to Stan Greenberg, a pollster. And so politics ran through them. And with Carl, I learned a lot about policy and I learned a lot about how a Senate office works. And, and with Rosa, I learned all those things as well, but, but also how important the politics is to it as well. She is incredibly aggressive. I mean, at least back then when she was just starting out and needed to make a mark and incredibly smart. And it was a very well-run office and organization. And I learned a ton from her in particular. So I spent a year as her press secretary. And, and then I was watching the, the campaigns, 92, the presidential camp election was starting and I felt antsy through uh, a friend of mine had an opportunity to join a presidential campaign in 92. And so I took it and, and sort of that began my, my campaign journey. And I was a, a campaign staff person, operative, whatever, however you want to call it for the rest of the nineties until, um, until I, uh, basically, I think it was 99. I, I became a media consultant. What was that 92 campaign and what were the highlights of that decade? Of the whole decade? Yeah. Okay. 
you don't have to give them all, obviously, but you know, just give us a flavor. So there were two campaigns in '92. The presidential campaign was Paul Songus, and it was it didn't last very long. I was on that campaign. I was on that campaign for just a few months until Paul dropped out of that race. But I was his deputy national press secretary, and I learned what a national campaign was like. And so it was a great learning experience, and I had a lot of fun on it. And that ended, I believe, in March of 92. And I immediately went to, from Boston to Chicago, because I got a job as press secretary for Carol Mosley Braun, who was running for Senate in Illinois. This ended up being the year of the woman, or the original year of the woman. And she had just won that primary, which she was not supposed to win, and would go on to make history as the first black woman ever elected to the Senate. And that was a ride. That was a wild campaign. But we did win it. It was my first big campaign that I was a senior, right? I was like the top press guy. That campaign was infamous, but... We did win. A couple other highlights as you go forward through the cycles. 90s. Yeah. So, I mean, the highlights would be the Karamazi Braun race and winning that, despite all of the distractions, which we don't need to go into. I managed Frank Lautenberg's reelection campaign in 94 in New Jersey, which we won despite the headwinds of it being a very, very bad year for Democrats. And he had a very tough re-election campaign that year. We sort of take New Jersey as a blue state for granted, but it was a tough race that we, was no guarantee we were going to win that, but we did. And I was proud of it. And in 96, I was the DNC communications director for Clinton's re-election. And that was fun. I mean, it was a great campaign. We, for most of that year, we ran much of the sort of the negative campaign, the anti-Bob Dole campaign out of the DNC. The research operation was housed in the DNC, and we did a lot of the sort of the earned media work against Dole and did a lot of work connecting Dole to Gingrich, who was speaker at the time, and it was a well-run campaign, and it was fun. Those are the, the the 90s highlights. It's not an uncommon thing for media consultants to have come out of a history like that. In fact, I think the acting, even though I haven't heard that before, fits in with communications and, and thinking about how to be persuasive to an audience. What's the founding story for your first firm there? I joined a firm. I didn't start a firm. I joined a firm. And when I made the decision to jump to doing this, it was a question of, if I'm going to stay in this field of politics, I want to do it in a way that I can have a big impact on campaigns. And I felt like having been a part of campaigns, but not a consultant, it was clear to me that the media consultants were First among equals, or if you look at a budget and 
and figure out, okay, the place where most of the money is going is the most important piece of a campaign, then it's media because most of the money goes to media. Right about that time in approximately 1998, I was talking to Matt Engel, who was DCCC executive director at the time. And I was thinking about starting a technology company in the space. He's talking to me about consultants and he said he kind of ranked them with media consultant pollster all the way down to like fundraising consultants were much lower and he said what distinguished media consultants in his view was a higher level of ability to persuade people to sell their services to operate at that same level as the candidate maybe almost do you see it that way I do. I, I think we, we need to have an ability to translate a candidate's voice and story into a narrative that persuades people. And so there are several skills that are involved. We need to be able to work with the pollsters to make sure that the instruments that they put together are what are going to give us what we need to tell the story. And we need to be able to tell that story in a way that's reflective, authentically reflective of the candidate so that it's believable and and it's true to them. Because if it's not true to the candidates, then it's probably not going to be true to voters. We do have to operate on, on a number of different levels. And there's a science to it and there's an art to it. The science to it is which didn't exist a bunch of years ago, the different platforms, but also how to buy the media in a way that you're reaching the people that you want to reach. And there are metrics involved in that. And then there's just sort of the art, which is the creative piece of it. It's about telling a story and, and being able to tell the best story. So what do you think you were good at in that realm and what was maybe less so? I think I was and, and, and am today really good at the language piece of it. In understanding what words to use and the language to use that doesn't sound like it's overly political. It's so easy. And when you, if you watch political ads or just listen to many candidates, the language is often politically stilted. It just sounds not like real people talk. And so I think I have a sense of and an ability to kind of work on that, massage that language so that it is, it connects with people better. It's how real people talk. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine in that too often that doesn't happen. And, and it's just sort of easy for campaigns to fall into political speak. Because that's how we talk to each other. It's shorthand. But that's not how we should talk to voters. A lot of people forget that just because it's it's easy uh, to just sort of take something and translate it or transfer it from one campaign to another. So rethinking that each time is harder. But I think that it's important and it's particularly important that candidates sound like themselves. But if there are candidates that sound too political, helping them to not sound so political. It's about connecting with people. Sure. What was harder for you? What was hard for me was building up the confidence to insist 
on some things that other consultants or campaign operatives didn't agree with or didn't think was important. And I'd say the older I've gotten, the more willing I am and the more confidence I have to fight for what I think is right. And I'm not always right. And I will acknowledge that. And I believe in this work as a collaborative effort. And I believe in teamwork and that not everybody is right, including me, but that it is important to express what you think and fight for it until someone can convince you that you're wrong, which I can be convinced I'm wrong for sure. It's not an ego thing at all for me. So how did it go as a business? Tell me about that side of what you were doing. I mean, you have had a couple different names on the masthead over the years, but how has it been? So my first firm was, was Struble Eichenbaum, Carl Struble, who is still a good friend. And he was my mentor in this business. And I joined his firm when I first started out. He was an incredible teacher and was and still is a brilliant strategist, understands what moves people and understands how to tell a good story. And we were together for 14 or so years and and we had a great run. It was the longest I had ever been in any one place. It was the longest by far job I'd ever had. And and we talked about my antsiness. So it was not a surprise at some point that I started to get antsy. And after about 10 years, at the end of the 2010 cycle, I decided, my wife and I had talked about this off and on since we'd gotten married, about wanting to, to go away with our kids to a different country for a while, just to expose them to something else. And my wife and I had each at one point in our lives lived in Israel. And that wasn't necessarily where, where we were going to go, but we did decide that's what we wanted to do. And so at the end of the 2010 cycle, we decided to take a family sabbatical to it. And we moved to Israel. We moved to Tel Aviv. The, there was one problem with that, which was I had a, a gubernatorial re-election in 2011. Steve Bashir, father of current Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, I was Steve's media consultant as well. And so at one point in, in early in 2010, I sat down with Steve and his wife, Jane, and I said, hey, this is what we're thinking of doing and what we really want to do, but I need your permission because you know, I'm loyal to you and you have this reelection next year. And Steve said, great. I mean, if that, if that's important to you, we'll figure it out, go do it. Jane was like, huh, hmm, I'm not so sure about this, but she came around and we moved there in December of 2010, like as soon as the, 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 the 2010 cycle was over. And we did win that reelection. And I did work from over, I did work from in Tel Aviv. I was on the weekly calls and I came back for focus groups and I came back to shoot ads and and then I was back for the fall campaign. So I, I didn't miss that much. I mean, I was back in August. Part of it was we really want to do this, but it coincided with, you know, I want to take a step back and sort of just reevaluate everything. 
we came back and I had pretty much decided I want to move on. I don't think it's going to be immediately, but I, I think maybe after the next cycle, it'll be time for me to move on. But we came back and within a month of being back, I found out that I had cancer and pancreatic cancer. I mean, I was very, very lucky. We it hadn't spread and there was no metastases as far as, as far as anybody could tell. I had surgery and it was removed and I didn't need follow-up treatment. I mean, it was just incredibly lucky. Because that one usually gets you. That one gets you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the crazy thing is the kind of pancreatic cancer I had was exactly the kind of cancer that Steve Jobs had. And the, the two weeks that we're sitting in doctor's offices trying to figure all this out and what's the plan was the week that Steve Jobs died of this cancer. Yikes. So, right, we're in those waiting rooms and he's on the cover of all the magazines. <laughs> so I decided I'm going to do the opposite of what he did. He tried to cure himself with a juice diet and I decided to get the surgery. So all of that, right, at the same time is makes you reevaluate your life. And my partner was so incredibly supportive and the whole staff was so incredibly supportive. And I was back within a few weeks and we went through the 2012 cycle. And at the end of the 2012 cycle, I said, I think, I think it's time for me to just move on. I think I'm, I'm ready to move on. I you know I've had these life events and I think I need something a little different. I'm not sure what that is. And, and Carl convinced me to stay. And out of loyalty and love to him, I did. And I stayed for another cycle. But then it was clear at the, at the end of 14, I can't do it anymore. I, I just thought that while we remain dear friends, I thought that the, the partnership had become a little stale. And I felt like we had become a little stale creatively and I felt like we just kind of weren't getting the races that we wanted to get anymore. And so it just seemed like it was time for both of us. And I took a step back from politics. I said, I'm going to try something else. My mom was deep in the throes of Alzheimer's at a very, very young age. She got Alzheimer's at 65 and died at 72. So she died in 2015. So she was near the end there. And, and at the end of uh, 2014, when I was making this decision, I was thinking, wow, my mom's got Alzheimer's. I had cancer. And are there other things I can do with my life? There seemed to be plenty of, plenty of work happening and plenty of money in the cancer space. And the more research that I did in the brain space, it was clear to me that there was not enough collaboration happening between all the different brain research areas. And there was very little data sharing happening. And there are hundreds of different brain diseases and disorders. And so much research is going on into each of those. But at the time, there was very little collaboration or data sharing. And, and you would think you're all researching the brain. You could learn something about one disorder and that would be very relevant to a different one. But none of that was happening. And I was connected with some folks in that space who felt the same way. And we started to kind of work on these projects to, to, to kind of try and fix that. 
and it was exciting and important. I started doing some writing on my own, and I thought maybe this is what I do. And then in 2016, Trump won. Yeah. And I said, oh, shit. <laughs> there goes that. It. Yep. I got to I got to I got to go back to what I was always what I think I was always really good at because I want to be able to tell my kids at some point right that I did everything I could. So I came back into politics and I formed a new firm with another friend of mine who was also looking to leave her media firm. We had been friends for many years and it felt right, you know, and it felt like a good a good fresh start. Is that Eichenbaum Skinner? Yes. Yeah. DeLacy Skinner. DeLacy and I met on Tim Kaine's gubernatorial campaign in 2005 in Virginia. She, I was the media consultant and DeLacy was the press secretary. And then she went on to be a media consultant as well at GMMB. And she was there for a bunch of years and was looking to make a change as well. How did that firm work? It's still going, right? Well, DeLacy, it's not. DeLacy, in, after the, we spent two cycles together. In 2021, she decided that she was done with politics. And she wanted to go back to her first love, which was screenwriting. When we started out, we knew that this could happen at some point. And during 21, I sensed that she was ready. So she moved to New York and, and is out of politics. But we had two really good cycles together. What is Village Square? So Village Square is the latest iteration. And I decided that it was, it was time to stop putting my name on the door. So DeLacy and I had hired Marianne Charnes to be our VP at ESK, which is the which was our firm in 2018 and 2020. And Marianne is terrific. And when DeLacy moved on and I formed Village Square, I thought that Marianne would be a great partner. And she is. And so I was trying to come up with a name that felt inclusive, that was about people and telling stories, which is what we do. I think it's it's better so that when somebody if somebody leaves you don't have to keep changing the name. When I'm hearing your story, it's easy for me to relate to different parts of it even though we've been in mostly different industries. I my mom got Alzheimer's around 60, give or take, hard to tell exactly. My dad took care of her for a decade and a half, but it, you know, it got her. It's a grim thing to watch and then about a year ago, I discovered I had a tumor in my brain, and that was taken out in March. It was not malignant, uh, apparently, but the last year has been recovering from that. And it's just like whatever career you have, there these things come up with human beings that you have to manage, and companies come and go, and it's the story that we all have that we traverse. And... It is. And it's so easy to, in this business, and we've seen it so much lately, to lose the humanity of each other. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to watch. It's hard to be a part of sometimes. And you just want to say, we're not enemies of each other, right? 
Um, you know, I want to ask you about the, the Bashir race that is one of the recent ones that you worked on. You've said that you worked for the father, the son. Being a Democratic governor recently in Kentucky is a challenge. That state does not lean Democratic anymore. It used to. I remember Walter Huddleston losing to Mitch McConnell. So I go back a long way. And that was probably won by the media consultant, perhaps, with some famous ads. But who knows? Uh, tell me about... Ding dogs, from what I remember. Yes, exactly. We're looking for him because he's become out of touch with the state. But there's always something really to learn from a win that you can't take for granted, where you're going against the grain. Tell me about you know, his candidacy and how you thought about it as a media consultant and how the race transpired. It really helps when you've got a great, I wanted to say product, but right, but he's a person. It's so much easier when you have a talented candidate, but when you also, when you have a public servant who is that in every sense of the word and has been such a good governor, it makes my job so much easier. And you have to start with that. You can't make something out of nothing. No, no matter how good I may be, I can't make something out of nothing. So Andy is, I mean, he has been, yes, an incredibly successful governor, but he has been a governor that has really affected people. It's in part based on circumstance, and it's in part based on who he is. And you put those things together, and from COVID and how he was comforter in chief and people tuned in to watch him every day at five because he was so comforting to, to how he dealt with the natural disasters in the East and the West and showing up and comforting people. It's a small thing, I guess, but it's so important and it's far more important than any actual policy wins that he might've had because to be a governor is kind of like to be a president, you want someone who you think is going to care about you, someone who gets you, someone who is going to do right by you. So much of this is actually based on character. I've said for many years that it's that's that's more important than than any particular policy. Andy started out ahead just because of how he performed as governor and how people felt about him. And the same was true for his father Steve. Steve ended two terms in a red state very well liked. And just because you're a decent guy doesn't mean that people are going to feel this way about you. But they both have that. People like them. And even those who disagree with them on most things like them. Boy, that's rare these days. We constructed a campaign around him showing up and caring about people. It was based on values. It was based on character. And sure, we talked about the economy, but when we had a Republican small businessman talking about how Andy Bashir has been great for Kentucky's economy, what was just as important, if not more important, was that we had a Republican small businessman supporting him as opposed to, hey, he's great for the economy. Ads send messages on a lot of different levels. 
and some are more important than others. And yes, we had an, an economy track running through a bunch of our ads, but we had a values track running through all of our ads and reminding people what they liked about him and that even if they disagreed with him on a bunch of issues, they felt that still he would do what he thought was right for the state as opposed to doing what's right for himself, being selfish or greedy or whatever it is. His motives, the motives that they that most voters ascribe to him are good and pure. And that's rare today. It's always good to hear about a politician in the democratic uh, world who has those kind of skills and can hold that kind of seat. And Trump seems to have pulled you back into politics. It, it's hard for me not to think about the Bashir race with the lens of the upcoming presidential and a candidate, probable candidate on the Republican side for whom character is not what you would go to in describing him good character. And I wonder how you think about this from the Biden campaign angle. Like, how would you think they should run this, given that he's been a pretty good president? He's probably a very good president. And he's up against a guy who is really so problematic for the system in, in every way that it just takes forever to enumerate and only a second to enumerate. How do you think about what we're facing across the different levels of politics and, and at the presidential right now? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a great irony that the blue collar middle class guy from Pennsylvania is struggling with working class voters and the billionaire shyster from New York, his base of support is working class voters. The Trump thing, I think character is involved. I mean, I know we always say like he's got no character and, you know, and all this, but th there's a character element there that his supporters really feel that he sees them, hears them, fights for them, is going to be their champion in a system that has forgotten them and that doesn't hear them. We can argue about whether that's true, because I certainly don't think that it is, that he looks out for their interests, but they believe that he does. And he says that he does. And he is very compelling about that. When he talks to those voters, they believe him. And that's a problem. And the president, Biden, I think would be well served to try and get back to some of those roots. You're not going to change the dynamic entirely in just several months, but they could do, and maybe they will do more to sort of lead with his values and his character. Because if the economy starts doing better and, and, and consumer sentiment is improving, you know, the last couple of months, it is improving fairly substantially. And if inflation continues to ease, that that will help him more than I think him trying to argue how good the Inflation Reduction Act is for people. When people feel it, I think a politician trying to convince voters that the economy is better than they think it is, doesn't work. They have to feel that it's better. 
And if the economy continues to improve and inflation continues to ease, they will feel it and that will help him. I think that he could lean into the character and values piece and his origin story a little more to remind people where he comes from and what his values are. And I'm not saying like, don't ever talk about the economy. I think you still have to make an argument, but I think it's a question of what you lead with and how much time you spend on each and, or just making an economic argument that's devoid of values, I think is one that is going to underperform. And I think it's important to fine, make an economic argument. It's important, but, but lead it with values. Do you find yourself optimistic about this cycle broadly or pessimistic? I'm scared shitless. I'm not a bedwetter. I think that right now, those who are screaming that all is doomed are viewing this election in a vacuum. The general election is going to start very soon. And it's just going to be different, I think, when when they're, when it's clear to voters that, yes, this really is going to be a Biden-Trump election. It focuses people more. I think there will be many who are who are, re- are reluctant about Biden, who will come home when they realize, in fact, the stark choice in front of them. And that doesn't mean everybody will. There is a Middle East problem in the Democratic Party, and I don't know where that lands. I, I do believe that many of those who are angry now will, when they realize that they could have Trump, will come back to Biden, however reluctantly. And hopefully the situation over there will come down by over the next few months as well. Are you worried about the third party options out there? Yeah, it would really be nice for somebody to talk some sense into Jill Stein. How many times do we have to do this? But yeah, that is a concern. I don't think any of us know what it means, where where it's going, if if anywhere. But yeah, I mean, if Jill Stein and 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 others are actually on the ballot, I do think it's a problem. If we get another Trump term, they they will be directly responsible. David, I had seen somewhere that you had been teaching a class at University of Michigan. Is that true? What was that about? It is true. I taught a class last semester. Michigan, is, which is my alma mater, Go Blue, has a Washington program. So I, I, I actually didn't spend the semester in Ann Arbor, which would have been fun. So students will spend the semester in D.C., and they have full-time internships, and they also take a full load of classes in the evening. And I taught one class. I've lectured in the past, but I've never actually taught a full semester long class. What was the class? It was about political polarization, the topic of the day. It's one of the main challenges facing political campaigns today. It's one of the main challenges facing society. And it's not just in the US, it's really worldwide. But there is such deep polarization among the electorate and a fundamental lack of trust by voters and politicians and government and the media that it's an interesting challenge in terms of how political campaigns are addressing them. 
with the increasing importance of social media, which actually there's something else in regards to that that would be interesting to talk about that I'm involved in. I was interested in sort of talking or teaching a class that dealt with this from a substantive, almost philosophical point of view, as well as a practical political campaign point of view and how those two interact. So it was a great education for me in terms of preparing for the class and the readings that I did and, and assigned. I was hoping to learn something from the students. I was hoping to get perspective from them. I enjoyed it. I was gratified by it. And I thought that the students that took it, took it because they had felt that issue in their lives and thought that it was important and they wanted to sort of dig deeper into it. So it was great. Were there particular readings that stuck out for you that influenced how you think about the electorate now? One of the books that I read and, and that I assigned several chapters of was a book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, mm-hmm. H-A-I-D-T. He is a social psychologist, really, who teaches at NYU. I found his book really interesting. There's some great writings. Elizabeth Colbert wrote a New Yorker piece about how politics got so polarized, and and there are several others. And I, a book that I read a bunch of years ago called The Big Sort by Bill Bishop was also really interesting in, in terms of the, the societal factors that have sort of encouraged this polarization geographically and, and socially and demographically and politically, obviously. One of the projects I'm working on now is Joe Manchin is a longtime client talk about somebody who hews to the center and he's announced that he's not running for re-election and he's announced that he's not running for president but we've formed this organization called Americans Together that really is trying to address this in a certain way to try and overcome the toxic polarization that exists and the the disgust by many voters with frankly with both parties it's pretty safe to say that the the extremes of both parties get more attention and that feeds into this polarization i would say that extremism is more of a problem on the republican side than it is on the democratic side but the the left of the democratic party gets a lot more attention even though they are fewer in numbers than the moderates that goes for elected officials and it also goes for voters you, know, you can look at a pie chart and see that moderate Democrats are a far bigger share of the Democratic Party than farther left Democrats are. But it's sort of the opposite on the Republican side. A far greater share of the of the Republican electorate are more to the right and a, a smaller share are moderate. It's a political consequence of this polarization. The solution comes really down to connecting with voters on a deeper level, a, a values level, a character level, and particularly in a presidential election, a lot of it depends on the candidates. You're on a certain team and those who are disgusted with both feel like the that in a way both parties have left them or aren't speaking to the issues that they really care about. I can go back to Kentucky and Andy Bashir, which I do think is a, a solution to that issue because you have a Democrat who is able to appeal to not only 
independents and people who are sort of fed up with both parties, but also center-right voters through moderate Republicans. And he did that by finding common ground. He did that by emphasizing values that connect all of us, irregardless of party, irregardless of where on the political spectrum you are. And he did it in a, in a pretty non-political way. So much of the problem, I think, in politics today is the demonization and turning the other side into the enemy, into un-Americans, into anti-patriots. It's a language issue which really exacerbates the problem. And Bashir was able to overcome that, A, by the force of his personality in terms of really being a conciliator, but also, as we've talked about before, showing up, right? And showing Republicans he is not who they perceive as a typical Democrat. There's a lot of work to do to overcome this, you know, and presidential races become even more polarized than others and are even harder to overcome that kind of thing. Yeah. You alluded to something that you're working on in social media. I know you're connected to people first. And I interviewed Curtis Hoagland back in the day when he had a different name for what he was working on. Tell me about what, what's going on there. Yeah, I sit on the board of people first and have for several years. So Curtis and I were connected right after the 2016 election, and I was concerned about, as many others were, about disinformation. And Curtis originally comes out of that counter-disinformation space. And so we connected around that and realized that the sort of the solution or the counter to disinformation, which is lifting up real stories micro-influencer stories, if you will, peer-to-peer -peer content is the best counter to disinformation. Truth and authentic stories by real people are the best counter to disinformation and trolls and bots and all that stuff. And so People First really has pioneered that work in terms of creating this platform of micro-influencers so that you can lift up the voices of real people from audiences of voters that you're targeting, because at a time of so much distrust of institutions and politicians and government and media, the trusted voices that are left are those of people from your own communities and your own affinity groups. They've developed this, this really powerful platform um, that has really gained traction both in the, in the political space and the advocacy space, but also in the commercial space to lift up the voices of real people to persuade others from their communities to take action or to, to support candidates. Is that something you're able to deploy to candidates that you're doing your regular work for as, as an assistance or is it not work that way? Yeah, it's a, I, I, I offer it as an option. It's not a requirement. It really depends on the needs and the budgets of individual campaigns. The place that it's really taken off is in advocacy work and in commercial work, but it has really gained, gained steam and traction in the political sphere. And not just in this country, we're um, doing this overseas as well. Most campaigns that choose to engage with it see the value. I view it as a compliment. I sort of describe what I do as a media consultant as a sort of a top-down approach. And I view what People First does as, a, as really as a bottom-up approach. It bubbles up from the people. There's a, a book probably out by the time we release this called The Lie Detectives. Are you aware of this? It's Sasha 
Eisenberg, who did the Victory Lab book a number of years ago, and he is writing about the attempts on our side of the aisle to deal with disinformation and tracks a number of the practitioners. And People First shows up in that book, for example. I have found in terms of this effort to defeat disinformation, it's a bit of a Sisyphean task, but I have felt like the political institutions know that it's a problem. They're paying it lip service in terms of trying to solve it. I'm not sure it can be solved. I think that I think that it can be addressed. It can be fought, but I'm not sure it can be solved. But I also don't think that there's really an appetite to spend the kind of money necessary to, to you know, have a ro really robust effort to address it. There may be some independent or an outside efforts. I know that there are to deal with it, but I, I don't know if I've seen anything truly at scale that is going to really minimize the effect of it. One of the things that I learned a lot about in that book was in Brazil, the constitutional court there, which was really took the power to fight this very directly and essentially became a disinformation police force and got extremely active in their sort of analogous big race between two former presidents. And we don't seem to have an institution that can do that or wants to do that. It's not happening in the platforms. They're pulling back from that. It's not happening in the government. In fact, we have lawsuits stopping whatever was going on. I mean, it, we're in a bit of a fix with the ability of actors to lie and deceive from the bottom up or the top down. Well, and you see it particularly and recently overseas in Ukraine and in, in the Baltics, right? I mean, the president of Estonia just the other day, right, came out and said, we're dealing with this massive disinformation campaign, you know, that's, that's uh, emanating from Russia. Yeah, Russia's doing that all over the place. All over the place. Yeah. No, and, and it's a huge problem in Ukraine. Yeah, they are trying to split that country up in a different way. Yep, it's a lot of challenges to be a political consultant these days, isn't it? Probably getting to the end of our time together, but I, I wonder what else you could tell people about kind of the job of being a media consultant that you've had for a bunch of years now that would, that maybe the, the misconceptions that are out there or what would surprise people about this as a profession? I think that maybe the average listener who's not involved in politics as a career might think of political consultants like they think of lawyers or used car salesmen or something, right? Like, oh, they're all snakes and they're all in it for whatever, the money. And my experience is for the most part, that's not true. There are some exceptions, but I have been privileged to know a lot of people in this business who really got into it and continue to do it for the right reasons, whether it's like me, I kind of fell into it and it felt like my skill set matched it. I wanted to find some way to make a difference in this field. I've always felt that if you want to change things, you got to be in the arena. 
and I've been fortunate and blessed to to be in the right place and to have the skills to be able to do this. There are a lot of good people in this business doing the work because they believe in it. There are a lot of politicians who come to Congress for the right reasons. I do think that the system is inherently corrupting and the money is a huge problem and the rat race to constantly raise it is inherently corrupting. And that does not mean that everyone who is here and is running for re-election is corrupt. Far from it. But there are some who are. But more than that, there are many who just, while they may be good people, they're stuck in this need to win re-election. And that's where the problem occurs when folks feel like they need to start compromising their principles in order to win re-election. It would be better to do the right thing and hope for the best and work your ass off so that you can win. But if you end up losing by doing the right thing, then, you know, still job well done. I can't say it's a sort of a majority, like most people are like that or not. I, I, I'd say a good number are. It just seems for, I guess, for the even partially trained eye, so dramatic on the Republican side right now, exactly how so many politicians are being compromised and saying one thing behind the scenes and another thing publicly and treating Trump like he has immense power over them, which he often does. Tim Scott endorsing Donald Trump. Unbelievable. Yep. It's unbelievable. And so that the lack of courage among so many, particularly on the Republican side, is just truly extraordinary. And I've had the privilege of working with Liz Cheney a bit over the last year or so, who I think is a national hero and is what political courage looks like. Yeah. You know? Lost her seat, but trying to save the Republic. That's right. That's right. And Got to honor that. Life, there's life after Congress. Yeah. Do the right thing. There's one one great example, going back to Andy Bashir. So he was attacked mercilessly with TV ads during the campaign over transgender rights and surgery for, you know, for, for minors. And because of a bill he had vetoed, because the bill was inhumane, right? It went too far and all of that. And, and he vetoed it knowing they're going to attack me on this. It's a huge political vulnerability, but it's the right thing to do. And as he said, in response to the attacks, all children of children are children of God. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. He did the right thing. We dealt with it in the campaign. We knew it was coming and we dealt with it. And you, know, you, you can deal with most things if people realize that you're doing things for the right reasons and for the right values, they will let it slide, even if they disagree with you. Is this something I should have asked you that I failed to? I'm sure there are a lot of things that are interesting we can talk about, but you know, how much time do you have? So no, it was great. Okay. Well, great to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, it was fun. The look back is always, is always interesting. Yeah, it, it was for me. 
That was David. He is at thevillagesquare.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.